Good morning. A few of you sounded cheery. And some of you, I know it's gray. It's okay. Uh, my name is Kristen Johnson, and I am the Shepherd of Communication here. And I know this is a big space, and it can be a challenge to connect relationally. Um, sometimes that challenge is our own personal preference. Maybe for anonymity. That was me when I started coming here almost 14 years ago. I went 18 months without talking to a soul. Maybe that's not the right move for you. Or sometimes the challenge is not knowing even how to connect in a place like this. Uh, if this is your first time today, that we would love for you to just take a small step um, and just make eye contact with the ushers when they come down right now because they have a gift for you, just a small gift to welcome you so you can start getting to know us. I think the ushers are coming down. The ushers are going to come down so that we can give you a welcome gift. Maybe this is a sign no one's new today. I don't know. Um, but whether this is your first time, you've been coming for a long time, if you feel like a visitor, we don't want you to feel that way. We would love for you to stop by our connect wall after the service, meet a staff member to just start finding ways that you can connect. We would love to help you in that process. Um, Two quick announcements, regardless of your level of newness or non-newness here. We have a Lent night of worship coming up on Ash Wednesday, which happens to be February 14th. So yes, we are inviting you to spend Valentine's Day with us, worshiping our God together. Uh, so that'll be at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, Valentine's Day, February 14th, in the comments. And everybody is welcome to that. We also have an all-church pickleball tournament coming up two weeks from today on Sunday the 18th. Uh, from one to three, so you can sign up now. Signups are live online. You can go to the What's Happening page on our website, sign up there. Whether you sign up to play or if you just want to come cheer people on, that'll be from one to three after this service uh, in two weeks. So we would love to see you there. If this is not your first Sunday, then I hope you know that we are in the midst of the story of Jesus and his disciples heading toward Jerusalem. The text does not explicitly say it, but they all knew that they were going there for the Passover. This was a normal rhythm of their year. The disciples and everyone else making their way toward Jerusalem is doing it just like they do every year. They're doing it with their standard sense of expectation, like your non-milestone birthday coming up. Not the expectation that this is going to be a life and history-altering event. There should have been more anticipation for the disciples because Jesus has told them repeatedly that he would be handed over and he would die. But there's no indication of a shift in their anticipation for the disciples on this particular journey. They do not seem to realize this Passover will not be like every other Passover. Our text begins today in Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. The approach to Jerusalem so far has been ho-hum. The disciples have done it before. They've done it with Jesus before. But his words to two of them are new here. Aside from possibly in utero, we have not seen Jesus riding on any animal before. But now he's commandeering a donkey for the final, very short portion of the journey into Jerusalem. He has walked for many, many miles. They all have. So riding a donkey for the last mile or so is noteworthy. It should have made every disciple raise an eyebrow. 
And the scene unfolds exactly as Jesus describes it. Then we read in verse seven, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Again, this is new. We should be on high alert as no doubt everyone around was at this point. Jesus is not an unknown commodity. So to see him suddenly riding on a donkey, especially one that has never been ridden, is noteworthy. Work animals that have never worked before are regularly used for sacred special purposes. We see that recorded in Numbers 19.2, in Deuteronomy 21.3, and in 1 Samuel 6.7. This would have been on the mind of the people around Jesus and his disciples. Something is different. Verse eight, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There is actually precedent for what the people do here. In the midst of turmoil in Israel back in 2 Kings 9, the prophet Elisha sent a man to the commanders of the army with a message for Jehu, telling him that he was being anointed king. And after the man gave the message, we read this beginning in verse 11 of chapter 9, 2 Kings from the NIV. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said, tell us. Jehu said, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So spreading cloaks and in Mark, the addition of branches or leaves is in a way paving the path for the king. The people knew this. And the people in Mark are in the midst of reciting the Psalms of praise that are associated with Passover. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes right out of Psalm 118. They said this every year as they went to Jerusalem for Passover. But they're recognizing something in Jesus riding on a donkey, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah, and paving the road for him now as for a king. But notice their words in 1110. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They seem to get that the kingdom is coming, but do they truly get what it means for Jesus to be their king? It doesn't seem that way. Right as the excitement is building here, they enter the temple area and the, it, it all shifts. Look at verse 11. And he, he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus here, he's entering the temple compound, but not the temple proper. He's simply on the temple grounds, taking in the scene. And the idea here is of a careful inspection before pronouncing a verdict or a judgment. He's doing something very intentional, but it's late. The crowd that was just maybe cluing in to Jesus doing something new, they've left and Jesus and his disciples turn and go right back to where they came from to sleep for the night. It seems like a bizarrely anticlimactic way to declare oneself the much-waited-for king of the long-desired kingdom but that was the straightforward part of the text. Mark goes on to recount the events of the next few days in a way that is unique to the Gospel of Mark. And I was less than thrilled to read some commentators describe the following sections as, and this is a quote, one of the most unusual and theologically difficult stories in the Gospels, end quote. So if you read ahead this week with us in our Mark reading plan, and if you 
got there and you sat in this and went, this is a weird Mark and Sandwich. I get it, it's Mark and Sandwich, but we've got a cursing a fig tree, cleansing the temple, and back to the fig tree with like a dash of prosperity gospel. What is this? Um, You're not alone. It's a strange text. But the longer I sat in it and studied it, the more beautiful and meaningful it became. And I am actually incredibly excited for us to spend the rest of our time this morning in this unusual and difficult story. So we have to remember Jesus and his disciples, they have taken a long multi-day journey to Jerusalem on foot. Jesus rode the last mile or so only on a donkey. They took a look at the temple area and then immediately backtracked to the village of Bethany. They presumably returned the donkey somewhere in there. And then they spent the night possibly at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. That's speculation. But they lived in Bethany. And then they made, they've made this journey to be here for Passover. But it's going to be a multi-day celebration. And it hasn't yet started. So we have a few days of preparation. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus and the disciples leave Bethany to return to Jerusalem. There's about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jesus was apparently hungry. Scholars translate Bethany as house of figs and Bethphage as house of unripe figs. None of them say it, but I assume that means there are a lot of fig trees in this area. Jesus sees a fig tree covered in leaves. So he goes to see if it has ripe figs on it. But when he got there, it's a leafy tree, no figs. And the text explicitly says there should not have been figs because it was too early. So in Israel, fig trees bear figs in June. Passover is a few months prior to that. So it's logical there should not be figs in April, March or April when Jesus approaches this tree. Now, I have no personal fig-growing experience, but what I gathered from some semi-contradictory sources is that while the fig tree does begin growing leaves, before it begins growing the fruit, by the time a fig tree has all its leaves, there should be some ripe fruit on it. However, if a tree fully leafs out and it does not have any fruit, it will not produce fruit that whole season. But sometimes you get a precocious tree and it starts getting leaves and fruit ahead of the other normal trees. So all of that seems to imply that Jesus and everyone else knew that it was not yet time for figs to be ripe. But if a tree was fully leafed out, that particular tree should have some early figs on it. Therefore, it's both understandable for Jesus to go check this particular tree that unlike the other fig trees is fully leafed out. And it's understandable and helpful for Mark to tell us that the average fig tree should not have fruit yet. So here's the really important part though that we can miss because we are not living in the first century. Multiple prophets including Hosea, Nahum, and Zechariah, they all used the fig tree as a symbol for Israel. Mark's audience, hopefully the disciples, would have known that Jesus is looking for fruit on this particular tree, not only because he is physically hungry, but because it is a symbol of him looking for spiritual fruit in the people and religious leaders and religious system of Israel. He is not merely looking for a morning snack. He has come to Jerusalem to look at his chosen people, 
to see if they are producing good spiritual fruit. Jesus looks at the literal tree and he cannot find a single fig. There is no fruit. Verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus is talking to a fig tree, but he is also talking to his people. He cannot find the fruit he is looking for on the tree or in his people. Remember the day before he was inspecting the temple area, just as he now has inspected this tree. What he found in both is not good. So here Jesus looks at the tree that has leaves but no fruit and thus presumably will not produce any fruit this season. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. If the fig tree as a symbol of Israel is standing in for his people and he is not finding the fruit of faith in his people. And if these words apply to them, listen to the devastation of these words. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The lack of fruit warrants the only miracle of destruction that Jesus ever does. All of Jesus' miracles are to bring healing, to bring life, to bring abundance, to bring peace, to bring wholeness, except this one. Here, his words bring the death of this tree. Do you see the picture being painted? Israel, as it has always been known, is not producing the intended fruit, and it is losing its opportunity to do so. There are consequences for its actions or lack of actions. God does not tolerate fruitlessness. The fruit Israel was meant to produce was to feed the nations. God always wanted his chosen people to be drawing in and including others. Here he is highlighting the hypocrisy of leaves without fruit. God never intended for Israel to be an ornamental fruit tree. All looks and no fruit. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. When Jesus enters the temple, he is in the outer portion, the court of the Gentiles. This is where anyone, regardless of family of origin or religion of origin, anyone was welcome to come and worship God in this space. The farther you went within the temple, the more restricted it became. There was a court for Jewish women, there was an area for Jewish men, and then eventually where only the priests could enter. But in the court of the Gentiles, all were welcome. Except how could they worship God when it is crowded with people selling animals for sacrifices and exchanging Roman money into the coins Jews needed to pay their offerings. It was noisy and smelly and packed. There was nothing welcoming or worshipful about it. It was not caring well for or providing spiritual sustenance for the Gentiles. We could even say it was a sign of the fruitlessness of the religious leaders because these merchants and money changers they were in the court of the Gentiles by the authority of the high priest. He was the one who allowed them to conduct business in a place of worship. Jesus driving them out is a direct challenge to the authority of the high priest. And Jesus was not done. Look at verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
This is an odd little sentence no other gospel writers include. But it appears that what it means is that the high priest was allowing people to use the temple area, again, the court of the Gentiles, to cut through from the city to the Mount of Olives. In other words, the people were getting to use the temple courtyard as a shortcut from point A to point B. That was not the intended use. Can you imagine how disruptive if it would be if there was a constant stream of people coming in from Brea Boulevard through these doors and parading through the front and going out to play pickleball while we're trying to sing or worship? It would be distracting and probably a little inappropriate. That was nothing. That would be nothing compared to what was happening in the temple. So Jesus stops it. Now, how many of you have read this story or heard this story, and maybe because of the way it's recorded in other gospels, you picture an angry Jesus in this scene. One gospel writer has him using a whip, right? I've always heard it taught as Jesus exercising righteous anger, and we get a little bit of pleasure out of that, I think, right? We picture him red in the face, big and loud and mad. But do you see that in our text today? It might be true, but I read this account, especially in light of him coming the night before to quietly inspect the temple, and then after the fig tree incident, and I'm reading this story and seeing Jesus longing to find spiritual fruit and a hunger for God in his people. He's looking for them to do it right. He's giving them every opportunity to do so. He's looking for them to seek God and to be compassionately sharing their God with others. He has been so patient, so measured, so restrained. I see disappointment and grief and heartbreak in him clearing out the temple. Was there some anger? Probably some, it would make sense. But I do not see him getting any pleasure out of this moment. I see him restoring God's intention for this space, for these people that has been long neglected. He's setting right or wrong, but it is not in a vindictive way. He's not happy to be kicking people out. It's a drastic action, but he's very clear about why he's doing it. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What he says here is beautiful. He's quoting from Isaiah about the temple being a house of prayer for all nations. And if the original audience knew what he was saying, they would have actually filled in the rest of chapter 56, our chapter 56. I don't think they called it that. Um, so we're going to look at a longer section of Isaiah 56 because they would have heard the rest of this in their heads. Starting in verse 1 in the NIV, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Listen to verse three one more time. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Do you see the stunning beauty of this? God sees and knows and has room for everyone. He is not looking to exclude. He sees a future for those the world and even his own people would have deemed worthless and without a future. A eunuch literally would not be able to procreate and pass on his family line. In some ways, his very identity was lost. But God goes on in verses four through eight to very, very clearly say that whoever you are, no matter what the religious elect or the world says about you, if you love God, if you pursue and obey God, then God has room for you. God sees you, God chooses you. God will give you a better future than your name living on in biological children. And that might not mean as much to us culturally today, but in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, that was a massive statement. Anyone who chooses God, who submits to God, who accepts the salvation Jesus freely offers is in God's family. Your family of origin, your ability to procreate or not does not affect your worth. God is in the business of adopting the marginalized and sharing his table, his family room with them. Look around. We are the foreigners and the eunuchs. Maybe not literally the eunuchs, but we are the people who by birth and by religious self-qualification, by the decision of others, we are the people who don't make the cut. And yet, because of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, every person, male or female, young or old, regardless of political affiliation, nationality, bank account, any other supposed qualifier you could list, every single person who accepts Jesus and gives their life to following him to the best of their imperfect ability, each of them, each of us, is a part of God's family. Listen to verses four through eight again. And if you are a follower of Jesus, picture yourself, picture your face in these verses. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Do you love Jesus? He was clearing the temple that day to make a space for you. He was quoting from Isaiah and including you in the people who are in, intended to be in his house of prayer. How amazing is that? 
That was the vision. The reality, though, was what Jesus called a den of robbers in a quote from Jeremiah. Instead of the temple being this beautiful place, this beautiful house of prayer for everyone, the religious leaders had turned it into a hangout for the people stealing from the intended purpose. Those robbing the outsiders and barring them from insider status. To any person putting up barriers in the path of another person pursuing Jesus, these words should be chilling. They fit with Jesus rebuking the fruitless tree the fruitless people. Jesus is looking for fruit produced by faith, not for an ornamental fruit tree full of leaves that cannot feed anyone. Withholding access to God is fruitless. It may look spiritual at times, but those are just leaves, not fruit. It was true then, it's true now. And some people in the audience got Jesus' intention, what he meant right away, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Up until this point, we have heard about Pharisees and Herodians in the Galilee region wanting to kill, be rid of Jesus. This is the first time the religious elite in Jerusalem are seeking to kill him. This is a game changer. Jesus and his disciples again leave the temple in Jerusalem and presumably return to Bethany for the night before heading back toward the temple in the morning. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The tree that Jesus said would bear no more fruit has actually completely died. It's not just looking a little sad. It is dead. This is clearly a supernatural death. A tree cannot die that quickly. And Peter takes note of it. And remember, if the fig tree is meant to symbolize Israel and the fig tree's fruitlessness is meant to symbolize the absence of spiritual fruit among the people of Israel and the religious system that they have corrupted. And if the disciples made that connection, seeing this tree rendered lifeless would have been shocking to them. Jesus has spoken against the hypocrisy of religious leaders before. Maybe the disciples even recalled these words. Do you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, and 28? Again, from the NIV. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Here, by having the outside of the fig tree match the inside, Jesus is demonstrating the spiritual death of fruitlessness. He is saying there is no room for this kind of hypocrisy in the kingdom. Outer appearances that are unaligned with what's inside have no place. God does not tolerate fruitlessness. This is imagery used over and over in the Bible. John 15, every branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off, taken away. And the branches that do bear fruit will be pruned to become even more fruitful. But who's responsible for that fruit? Remember the passage that Jesus quoted in today's text from Isaiah about foreigners and eunuchs who are wholeheartedly pursuing God. He promised them a seat at the table. People, including us, who surrender our lives to Jesus no longer have to attempt to earn a seat, which no one can do anyway. And when we accept the seat that Jesus is offering, and we follow him, we are given the Holy Spirit as a seal, a guarantee, an ongoing promise and presence. And it is the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit in us. 
It's our job to be receptive to him. Look at Galatians, beginning in verse 19. Again in the NIV, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Those surrendered to Jesus and pursuing God will no longer produce natural human fruit of hatred, rage, division, selfishness, but the spirit in them will produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of Jesus followers. And it's meant to feed those around them. It's devastatingly heartbreaking and should cause us to do much soul searching and repenting that often Christians in America today are considered hateful, divisive, and angry by the culture around us. We should look different from culture and they should know us by the fruit of the spirit that the spirit is producing in us individually and collectively. If our fruit is the same as the culture's fruit, jealousy, selfishness, impurity, debauchery, envy, we need to honestly ask if we are all leaves, all show and no fruit. The spirit longs to mature us into individuals and a united church producing love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness that is for the benefit of those who have not yet met Jesus. But coming back to our text, Mark sandwiched the cleansing of the temple between these two incidents with the fig tree. And yet when Peter points it out to Jesus, the response of Jesus might feel like a non sequitur. What is the connection to the fig tree, to fruitlessness, to the religious leaders misusing the temple grounds and impeding the worship of those they've deemed outsiders? Look at Jesus' words beginning in Mark eleven twenty two. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaiming in symbolic ways that he is indeed the savior Israel was waiting for, even though they mostly missed it. He then looked for fruit on a tree that had none, just as he looked for spiritual fruit in his people and found none. He told the tree and symbolically told the people, there would be no more fruit from them. He cleansed the temple of its misuse and made space for true followers and worshipers who seemed like outsiders. He declared the outsiders insiders. In the process, he earned the death wish of the religious leaders. And now he says, have faith in God. 
Clearly that sums it up. There's no room for Jesus followers to put their faith in anyone or anything other than God. Religious leaders cannot save you. Religious institutions cannot save you. Religious traditions and structures cannot save you. All of those without faith in God lead to fruitlessness. They lead to spiritual death as symbolized by the fig tree. Have faith in God. Have faith in God alone. He illustrates that faith in verse 23. In Zechariah, mountains represent hard things. Using the mountain as a figure of speech in verse 24, Jesus is saying that the greatest difficulties can be removed only by faith in God, not by works, not by religious efforts, not by will, but only by faith in God. So pray in faith. Pray believing that God alone is capable of resolving your requests. Does it mean we will have easy lives and every prayer will be answered in an unqualified yes in accordance with our preferences? No, clearly not. Jesus is saying this days before he will die a brutal death. Jesus tells us this is how to pray mere days before Jesus himself prays and asks that if there is any other way besides a torturous death, could God please bring salvation that way? And the answer is no. Salvation comes through Jesus' shed blood alone. So we know that these verses are not promising every request we make to God will be answered in a pain-free and blissful way for us or even how we want or think it should be. It will be answered, though, as Jesus modeled in line with God's will. Jesus shows us how to pray for exactly what we want, but submit our desire to the will of God for his perfect way of bringing it about, for the good that he is working out. Then in verse 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus tells us that God answers prayers prayed in faith and prayed with a willingness to and an actual act of forgiveness. We cannot pray hate or pray from a place of hate. We, like Jesus, need to be quick to offer forgiveness and trust God to bring justice. When we pray in faith and from a posture of forgiveness, we will see fruit. Those forgiven much ought to be quick to forgive others, to pray in expectation of God's saving and fruitful activity. When we pray in faith and a posture of forgiveness, we will see fruit. We will not be the fig tree looking great and showy, standing out from all the other trees, but with no fruit. We will not be hypocrites with the appearances, but nothing nourishing to offer the spiritually hungry. Jesus' kingdom is here, not perfectly as it will be someday, but it is here now. He has places at the table ready for those to whom the world has said, not at my table. He has room for me and for you. He is looking, as he quoted from Isaiah, for those who are wholeheartedly pursuing God, those people choosing Jesus then have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one producing fruit and that fruit is for people hungering for God. That fruit is the evidence of faith and forgiveness. Jesus showed us his willingness to end hypocrisy, to destroy the fruitless tree and the fruitless religious system. He is inviting us into something prayerful, something fruitful, something beautifully inclusive and sacrificial and life-giving. Are you in?
Have you taken your seat at the table? If so, are you pulling back the chairs for others so they can take their seat at the table too? Are you quick to forgive, quick to acknowledge your inability, but God's ability? Are you, look, are you letting the spirit work in you to produce fruit for the spiritually hungry around you? I hope so. I hope I am. God, we confess there have been times when we have had more leaves than fruit. May that never be again. Grow our faith. Teach us to surrender our plans, our expectations, our systems, and to lean fully on you. You alone are worthy of our faith. Grow good fruit in us, please. Prune us, even when it's painful, so that we can be a more fruitful church. May we be known as faithful, forgiving people, bringing your kingdom to our families, our neighbors, our circles, our city, our nation, our world. May people look at us both as individuals and as a church family, and may they see Jesus. Amen.